Hey, I'm Peter. I'm a compulsive pro soccer team starter. Ladies and gentlemen, ducks, deers, badgers, golden eagles, and flamingos of all ages, welcome to a Garden Fresh episode of With Aplomb, a show about the history, culture, and happenings in the beautiful game. Looking back at the last two to three decades of American soccer, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who has contributed more to building the ecosystem than Peter Wilt. In addition to being the most beloved business executive by fans anywhere he's been, just ask the Chicago Fire or Forward Madison fans if you need any confirmation. The man's also a walking encyclopedia of all things sports. In one breath, he'll tell you where the site of the first soccer game to ever be played in the United States was and how he tried to recreate it. And in the next, tell you about the ancient sport of Kabaddi, a contact team sport that's the national sport of Bangladesh and popular in Pakistan and India as well. And after that, he'll tell you about the connection that Madison and Berlin have with the iconic track and field star, Jesse Owens. Peter was kind enough to spend two hours with Raj and I as we got into all things soccer, his new adventure with Forward Madison, the importance of a passionate local fan base like the flock in Madison, his six championship rings, promotion and relegation, and so much more. We recorded this interview as we sat in LJ's, the bar across the street from Forward Madison Stadium, so you'll hear some background noise. You'll have to forgive us for the audio quality, but we promise that you won't hear a better, more kind, and passionate advocate for the beautiful game. We started things off with asking him to give us a brief overview of his illustrious career. Please enjoy our interview with the legendary Peter Wilt. Oh gosh, um, I guess I'm most well known for starting the Chicago Fire in 1997 and I served as their president and general manager for eight years. Prior to that, I started the Minnesota Thunder, which morphed into Minnesota United. Prior to that, I ran the uh, Chicago Power, uh, the indoor NPSL and the Milwaukee Wave of the indoor AISA, which became NPSL. And I later um, started the Chicago Red Stars and Indy 11 and a uh, too soon forgotten indoor team named uh, the Chicago Riot. Right now I'm uh, launching these two teams in Wisconsin. How is the community sort of embracing the team and how, how do you think that it's going? Oh, really well. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, which isn't too surprising, you know, given the nature of this market. It's a very young city because of the students, but also some of the businesses that are here. So the young adults obviously embrace it. Mm, thank you very much. Sir. We just had our Forward Madison Cherry yes. Pulse delivered. Cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers, and Incredible. So Madison, is, it's a very young city. It's um, liberal. In some ways, the demographics reflect Portland, Oregon's. Mm-hmm. And with the success uh, Portland has had with the Timbers, I think there's a corollary there. So it makes it not too surprising, the success we've had. The other elements that go into the success that are critical to this, and, and, and many other you know, pro soccer teams that have been successful, is location of the venue, and it, it's ideal here, and the caliber of the ownership. And we've got wonderful ownership that's experienced, committed, creative, 
ingrained into the community and hardworking. Vern Stemmen and Connor Kaloya, who are the operating investors, are brilliant. Their experience on the baseball side transferred over very well to this team. Hopefully I was able to help them on the soccer end a little bit. But the location of the venue is, is wonderful. We were talking before we went on air here about this neighborhood. You know, just half a dozen years ago was a bunch of used car lots and dilapidated buildings. And it's really blossomed in recent years. It's only, it's less than a mile away from the state capitol. It's right in the downtown area, the East Capitol District. And in recent years, developers, in fact, the building we're sitting in right now, oh, used to be a used car lot, and it was developed in the last few years. I think the investor, the developer actually said he wanted to create Madison's version of Wrigleyville, you know, and he wanted Bree Stevens Field to be Wrigley Field. And he needed the programming there, um, the anchor tenant, as well as other events. Big Top Sports and Entertainment took over the management of Bree Stevens four years ago. Synthetic turf was put in, which allowed multi-use for the venue. It went from maybe 30 to 40 uses a year to literally a couple hundred uses a, a year. A lot of them community events, various high school sports, festivals, food events, uh, and True community events, yeah. Uh, and also concerts. You know, there's now, you know, half a dozen concerts a year that Big Top uh, hosts here. But it really needed an anchor tenant. And the venue, even though it's made for baseball, it's a soccer stadium. <laughs> you know, you look at it, it's rectangular. It was really an odd-shaped baseball facility, which lent itself to some easy home runs that I think even I could have put out on Washington Avenue. And so now it, it has its, its, its real calling its long best long-term use as a soccer facility and the investment that the city and big top recently made to increase the capacity has also made it more intimate you know, it's already a, you know a very intimate facility you know, capacity now is still uh, just pushing 5000 this latest expansion in addition to getting a couple thousand more capacity it also brought the people closer on each side I mean, it's amazing. You're right on top of the action and not a bad seat in the venue. And you get a different experience from each of the locations. You know, if you're on the rooftop behind the goal, which is a new area we we built under a 94-year-old canopy roof and grandstand, uh, you get a social experience. It's an all-inclusive all you can eat, um, three beer tabs uh, during the game. It's stand up for the most part, although you know, there's plenty of bar stool seats and drink rails there. Uh, but it's more of a socializing area. Uh, the regular grandstands on the sideline is, which is 1934 and built uh, as part of the WPA project. That is more traditional seating for youth soccer and season ticket holders. In the front row there, we added the forward club, which is touchline seats. They're actually the seats, the courtside seats from the Milwaukee Bucks in the Bradley Center. Again, a a new use. We also used the suite furniture from the Bradley Center, brought that over, and installed that in our 11 new suites on the Washington Avenue side. So you get the corporate hospitality area on the Washington Avenue side, 
And then, of course, the flock end is brilliant. A different experience, unique, especially in Madison. There's no seats, so it's just risers, standing section. And the flock has been amazing. They've embraced this team so much, and they create the atmosphere that's so special here. Actually, as soon as we walked in, one of the things that jumped out at me right away was how close the seats were to the field itself. And it was very much reminiscent of you know some huge clubs in Europe and South America, where by design they have the seatings closer to the field and actually fans tend to be upset when the stadiums change to expand because then they go farther away i mean you know dortmund is like that a lot of clubs in the netherlands are like that i know selfishly for the two of us we cannot wait to actually experience it this isn't your first team you've been around the block in many ways in the pro scene in the united states but how has this been different than your previous experiences with launching clubs and getting a fan base and in such a short time becoming, you know, a team that has the biggest fan base in USL1. Well, real quick, let me address your prior point about the closeness to the field of those seats. I mean, I was an old Chicago Blackhawks season ticket holder in the first balcony in the old stadium when they moved over to the United Center. When they moved to the United Center, my comparable seat was about 50% higher cost and about 100% further from the ice. (laughs) And it's part of what goes along with luxury seating and clubs and all, blah, blah, blah. It forces you away from uh, the actual plane surface. When the Hertha Berlin players and staff was here a few weeks ago, they commented on how much they loved our facility because of the proximity to the field. Their venue, of course, is one of still a few in in Europe that has a running track around it. And, of course, I I told the president of Hertha Berlin that our little venue here and their Olympic Stadium venue from the 1936 Olympics has something in common. And he asked what that was. And I was kind of excited to tell him that Jesse Owens raced in both of our venues. Oh, wow. That's so (laughs) incredible. The result of of his race in Berlin was a little bit more important than the race here, but But still still. pretty cool. That's incredible. Wow. You know, it must be a lot of work for you to sort of build clubs, and now you're, like, building the fan base and you're getting the community involved. You know, what what would you say, like, your day-to-day is? Is that what's your main focus? Here, because of the wonderful leadership we have with the ownership and the staff, I'm actually able to focus on a couple of other things, and that's community engagement, promoting the team, working on on game promotions, and then working with our USL League Two team in Green Bay. So that's my focus right now. You know, starting a team, some of the keys are really putting the right teams together. So teams plural, because it's the one on the field and the staff running the team on the field and the front office staff. I think we've done really well on, on both sides. Despite uh, being at the bottom of the standings looking up, it's very close, very tight right now. And I believe the, the players we have and the coaching staff is, is very good. And we'll end up uh, the season closer to the top than the bottom. Uh, and then the, the staff we have in the front office is amongst the best in the country, especially getting a guy like Kuba, who I know you know well. He's amazing. I mean, to be able to find a gem like him who understands the sport, the culture, and is uh, native to this community yeah. is, is just perfect. You know, when, when I put together organizations, I always look for a key staff person, and that 
has a lot of those qualities, and, and Cuba's our guy in Madison. But it's not just him. It's the entire staff that's really worked their butts off to, to make this thing work and work well. The existing staff from the Madison Mallards mm-hmm. has been brilliant embracing the soccer team and utilizing their skills and transferring it to the soccer side. And the new people we've brought in who are soccer-specific are, are quality people. And, you know, I think that's you know one of the qualities I bring is a good ch- judge of talent and a good network from my experience and able to bring in a good group. Can you tell us a little bit about that ring? Yeah, what is the story of this ring? So I, I, I'm very fortunate. I've got... I think six championship rings and a ring of fire ring. Uh, the one I, I, I've been wearing lately has been my 2000 U.S. Open Cup ring from the Chicago Fire. It's pretty neat. It's, it has two diamonds because it was the second of the four U.S. Open Cup championship rings uh, I won with the fire. And uh, I, I was very proud of uh, Forward Madison's run in the U.S. Open Cup this year. We went further than any... USL League One team, which came with a nice bonus. So that was pretty cool. We And we had to make that run without our Minnesota players because they were going to be cup-tied to United. Uh, so our guys did great. And I was going to say probably, no probably about it. Our best played game of the year was in the Open Cup against El Paso. On the road, I understand these things aren't always easy to do for U.S. soccer, but in a regional round, they sent us on a very difficult road trip in three different flights to El Paso to play a game against a higher division team, and the guys played brilliantly. Uh, The coaches put together a great game plan. So This tournament is near and dear to my heart. I think those that are really into U.S. soccer, lowercase s, really appreciate this tournament and uh to u.s soccer uppercase s to their credit it's heading in a better path i i I like the fact that as does everybody in in american soccer that the espn plus deal gives us accessibility to every match and we get to see the beauty of these early rounds firsthand and really experience it, albeit on, on online. There's nothing like a U.S. Open Cup early round match in person, especially when it's a lower side against an upper side. I'd love to see a continued progress with this tournament. More, I'll say meaningful games, that's not the right word, but basically I'd love to have the lower-seeded team guaranteed hosting rights or the right of refusal to host the round. And this might not be the right case because I'm not sure New Mexico could have hosted, but that last round where New Mexico upset the Colorado yeah. Rapids. Yeah, exactly. What a great story, a great event. And understandably, I guess, and uh, unfortunately, it was, it was played at Dick Sporting Goods Park with a, a very small crowd in an environment that wasn't the best. If that game had been played in New Mexico, you know it would be packed and the passion would have been amazing you'd have at least 15,000 people that had a story a positive story to tell about soccer probably for the rest of their lives it would have an impact Uh, so again progress has been made and let's hope uh, it continues to be made in this tournament how do you feel about the league systems in the u.s where there's no uh, relegation and promotion versus the current structure that exists perhaps in more developed soccer communities um was someone asking about promotion and relegation yes <laughs> yes i was uh it's interesting i mean i'm obviously a big proponent of it and i also understand that 
it has huge challenges to be implemented, A, in the United States because of a variety of reasons, not the least of which there's an established structure without it. And changing established structures is always difficult. But rec- you know, recently I read an advanced manuscript of uh, Bo Durer's upcoming book, uh, Why the United States Will Never Win the World Cup. Bo has a compelling chapter in there about promotion and relegation and the various arguments for it and providing a counter to a lot of those arguments. You know, I, I don't think it's clear one way or the other that it's not a salvation. Promotion and relegation isn't going to be the be-all and end-all of high-level soccer in the United States. That being said, I don't think there's any denying that it makes it more interesting to people, that it'll be more engaging for a lot of reasons. So if for no other reason than, and I often say this, is a chemistry experiment. I want to see it happen so we can see what the heck the impact is. Certainly there'd be a a number of positive impacts to it. You know, the negative impacts. It's tough financially, though, with the drop-off, at least... You know, if we're talking about MLS relegation, you know, I feel like there's a, enough of a drop-off there where it's it could be sort of financially debilitating, no? To then try and have to try and fight back into the MLS. You know, they could do like parachute payments like they do in England. You know, I'm a Man United diehard fan, but I'm from a town called Barnsley, which is just outside there, and they're a lower league team. And this is the team that I watch, and they just got promoted to the championship. It's such a slippery slope when teams get relegated that they're fighting and they're used to a certain amount of revenue coming in. And like for me, I think that would be like the main sort of obstacle. Well, I'm a Fulham supporter, so I, <laughs> I, I recognize uh, the, the pain that goes along with it. And making that palatable for MLS teams is absolutely a challenge. And that's because of the established structure and the expectations that they have. That being said, I wrote a a long dissertation about the subject a couple years ago, and there are ways to address it. You can keep the broadcast revenues equitable between first and second division, for sure. There's arguments that the interest paid in the relegation fight or the promotion fight from second division would offset uh, the negatives of being relegated. So it's interesting. And MLS doesn't have to be part of Uh, the solution it it can either be just lower division which is a lot less interesting frankly or it can be an alternate first division uh, that that becomes part of it but um, that's just theoretical right now I'm past that I'm uh, committed to uh, team building as opposed to league building I can appreciate that your enthusiasm for this club and community is incredible it's very refreshing I'd like to hear both of your stories on who was your first favorite sports team? I assume it's soccer, but maybe not. And why you gravitated to that team? Was it geography? Was it family pressure? Was it peer pressure? And pressure is not the right word, but influence. I find that is one of the most fascinating things to me. Because when building a team from scratch, what you're trying to do is give people a reason to emotionally connect with this team that prior they had no reason to connect to it. I mean, traditional sports, whether it's soccer worldwide or baseball, basketball, football, hockey in the United States, oftentimes it's um, familial. Your your family influences you or 
geography or media influences you. Nowadays, with the transient nature of life, people moving, it's nothing to move five, ten times before you're 30 years old. The geography thing sometimes isn't as impactful, and it's either cultural, friendships, media, other uh, things that influence the decision-making and the depth of the support of your team and which sports you gravitate to. So be real curious. You talked about Barnsley. I'm guessing geography and family had a lot to do with that. But how did you become a United fan? I guess, again, geography. For me, it is geography. And I grew up in England where the sports are essentially rugby, cricket, football. I did play a little bit of cricket, but like football, it's just part of the culture. And it's just, you don't have a choice about doing anything. You wake up and you kick a ball about. That's just how life is. And that's how we grew up. We would call the city council to keep the lights on later on because (laughs) we were still awake. The lights needed to be on. And for me, you know, I grew up in Barnsley, which is about 30 miles east of Manchester. Literally, the only thing that separates South Yorkshire from Lancashire, Lancashire, the county Manchester's in, South Yorkshire, the county Barnsley's in, is the Pennines Mountains. So for me growing up, the closest first division club was Man United, you know, Leeds, but you can't support Leeds from where I'm from. And then I, I was ready to go to your point about familial. You know, we were immigrants from India. No one in my family are sports fans. They didn't even really know that I existed. I have an older brother who, you know, like me, is very into it. But we were also co-raised by our neighbors who were an English and Irish couple from Manchester. And they were Mancunians and they would have it no other way. They're diehard United fans. They've been United fans for 70 plus years. They're season ticket holders. And we didn't have that option. You know, when I started supporting United in the mid 80s, we were terrible. This was right as Ferguson came in at 86. We didn't win a trophy until the League Cup in 1990. Now it's different. Now we have this history and now it's crazy and who would have thought that you know we'd be sitting here and you know they're one of the most profitable sports organizations in the world for me when I talk about United I do feel pride when I see other people like in New York or around the world now wearing United gear I have a sense of pride for that the happiest I am ever is in Old Trafford going in and we were speaking about Cantona he changed my life about playing beautifully you know he was also a poet just expressed himself and he just happened to play football he brought the beauty to me it wasn't just kick the ball about and try and beat an offside trap it was let's do this beautifully and let's this is our culture this is what we're representing that's to me what football is and that's why for me it was geography a long way of answering your question geography is probably not the right term it's location certainly but it's the culture within that geographic Mm -hmm. circle yeah 100 percent and you know there certainly there were people i went to school with growing up who weren't united fans or they weren't barnsley fans you know i grew up with also arsenal fans but it was pretty rare now it's not so now in this internet instagram era transient culture exactly now everyone's kind of from everywhere and you're you're on the internet you know we didn't have all that you know and so now everyone's kind of in a golden generation right now my fear is that i don't know if it's 20, 40, 50 years from now, I won't be around, but that we get to a point where where you're from doesn't matter. And it's interesting, the Olympics and the interest in the Olympics, I'll, I'll say dissipating, and maybe I'm totally wrong on this, but I don't think I am. The interest in the Olympics dissipating, I think, is a reflection of the dissipation of 
pride in a country, an emotional connection to a country because the world's getting smaller and it's not as much and maybe I'm too close to the forest to see the trees but in the United States anyways where travel is so easy and we're just as easily connected to England or Mexico and Canada as any other country there's not that passion and to bring it really local Wisconsin and every well most states in the U.S. have had a competition around essentially a state Olympic games in Wisconsin, it's called the Badger State Games, and uh, it used to be a really big deal uh, for kids in high school, college, and young adults. The, the best athletes in the state competed to be the winner, the best in the state, and the Badger State Games has slowly faded away, partly because I don't think the importance of being the best in your state matters as much as it used to be, and I, I, I think some of that is because... The world has become such a smaller place. It's so cool with travel being inexpensive and easy to do. We can say, you know what, I think next month I'm going to go to Australia. I'm going to spend three weeks in Australia. Well, not three weeks because we don't have the vacation time that Australians have. That's another subject that we could spend an hour talking about. But it's easier to do. So the, the beauty is we're so well connected worldly. But the... I uh, I'll say negative, I'm not sure it's a negative, is that we're becoming one and the competitiveness isn't there. Certainly the example I gave with the Olympics or the Badger State Games, but I wonder if that competitiveness is diluted over 20, 30, 50 years on a you know, soccer standpoint, just to give an example. To your point about how perhaps fragmented things have become, so the first team that I fell in love with was the late 80s uh, Milan team. That team was sort of from all over. Frank Reichard, Marco Van Basten, probably the greatest backline ever assembled. Baresi, Costa Curta, Maldini. Uh, and then, of course, in the middle, you had Donadoni and Albertini. And so that was, that was the first team I sort of fell in love with. After that, Mostly because of Cantona, I fell in love with United. Really, was also in Iran, there was an accessibility issue. Well, yes. you you meet a lot of people actually who are Serie A fans because of where they grew up Absolutely. and what was on television. Absolutely. I mean, this this we're seeing it now in the U.S. where now you can watch Serie A matches as of this past year, or the reason people are now all of a sudden getting into the Premier League because the games are accessible. I've sort of lost my affinity for any particular team. And one of the reasons I love the Champions League is that if you're the best, you play. It doesn't matter what your flag is. It doesn't matter what your, uh, where you were born. The opportunity is available to you if you're good. And of course, that's one of the things that's great about the sport. But I will say this. As much as I, don't, I say I don't have an affinity for flags, there is something for how clubs are run. So a club like Manchester United, at least how their past was very much focused on youth development, I do like clubs like that. So I still have a certain affinity for the Barcelonas of the world and the Uniteds of the world, even though both of them have sort of deprioritized the youth side of the game. But historically speaking, I mean, some of the best players from both these giant clubs came from their youth ranks. And I think maybe to bring back that feeling of, hey, how do we bring back that affinity really for the badge? 
part of it has to be the homegrown talent mixed with the international talent. I mean, when we walked through your stadium, one of the first things that grabbed my eyes was the different flags. I'm like, this is a welcoming place. I see Japan's flag. I see Mexico's flag. I see the U.S.'s flag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we do have a Mexican player. Okay. We, we have flags of, every, uh, uh, of the nations of every player on our team. And uh, Christian Pato Diaz is from Mexico, of course. But you're right. We have, we have players from Ecuador and uh, Brazil and Japan. And, it's, it's the planet's Panama. ultimate sport. It is. It's, 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 it's wonderful. And it's the most popular sport on the globe, but it's not necessarily the favorite sport in every country. And, um, you know, the Kabaddi example is, is one in Pakistan. For sure. It's not soccer. Um, I mean, in India, it's not soccer. No. In Finland, in it's not. In China, it's not. In China, right there, that knocks off a billion people. Yeah, yeah China least. and India. How, how big is China these days? It's Over like a billion? 1.3 billion. Yeah. 1.3. You know, when I was a kid, it was like 800 million. That's yeah. how old I am. I mean, even India's population, we've grown almost exponentially since I've been alive as well. I mean, we're at 1.1 billion, and out of those 1.1 billion, nobody can play soccer. Like, that's very frustrating for me. We just need an 11 at this point. Like, I'm one of them. Like, we need 10 more. I'll say this. I think it's wonderful to, at least for now, know that Madison has a pro team. (laughs) While we're still here. Yeah. While we're still here, our planet's ultimate sport has come to the city that we do have affinity for. Yeah. Yeah, I think the globalization, which is kind of what we've been talking about, one of the huge benefits is bringing this world sport to America. It boosted the interest in soccer in major cities first. But in the last five or ten years, gosh, the, the, the interest in professional soccer in medium and small cities is really exciting. Chattanooga is kind of the poster child for that. Yeah. Everyone says, how the heck? Chattanooga? Really? Yeah. I mean, Madison, I kind of get the demographics, <laughs> but Chattanooga... It is, absolutely. I'm so excited, and I'm an older guy, gosh. I'm in my upper 50s, and I've been in the sport for 30 years. I I didn't think I would live to see the day when it would be accepted, embraced, and become part of the mainstream in medium-sized cities or non-coastal cities. Right. And here we are. Madison is a great example of that. Uh, But... You know, Chattanooga maybe more so because it's not the traditional demographics you think of. It's because of the fact that team, and Madison's the same way, but a little less surprising, both those teams, they represent the community. Those emotional connections are there. And the fans see what's going on in the field, and they're like, that's me. I'm fighting Richmond or the uh, the rival town. And that's the beauty of sports is that tribal mentality. I mean, I've got my favorite soccer teams probably in five different leagues, which can be uh, exhausting at times, Um, but by a lot of scarves. (laughs) But it's the beauty of the game. Again, we're in a golden generation, and generation being loosely, you know, call it 200 years or 150 years anyways, where... We fight our battles, a lot of our battles, in athletic fields. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And especially in the last, I don't know, 30 years, 
you know, violence in soccer has been minimal. And let's hope it stays that way. And it's a friendly rivalry. And it, it's, it's fun, but we still have that passion. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's part of what makes life great. Well, I can say this, at least for us. Uh, I genuinely think Madison is fortunate to have someone like you with not just your enthusiasm and experience, but with your optimism for the sport uh, to be here. We're definitely grateful for your time. Optimism for the sport, pessimism for the planet. <laughs> Fair trade-off. <laughs> Fair trade-off, exactly. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much. This was incredible to, oh, to have. Yeah, my pleasure. You. Good talking to you guys. Thank you so much. Before wrapping up this episode, we want to thank each and every one of you from the bottom of our hearts for not just tuning into every episode, but for all your DMs, texts, support, feedback, and helping us spread the word about this fast-growing, no longer so little show of ours. Truthfully, Raj and I are still taken aback by the reception we've had because we would have never expected that our show would have listeners in 38 countries in just 12 episodes. To all of you in Brazil, the Philippines, England, India, Italy, Iran, France, Hong Kong, Belgium, South Korea, Germany, Guatemala, Japan, Sweden, and wherever your seed is planted, thank you. Undoubtedly, a highlight of our visit to Madison, we're beyond grateful to Peter for taking the time to chat with us. He's truly a one-of-a-kind human, and we wish him continued success in his incredible journey of building soccer institutions and spreading the wonderful culture of our beautiful game wherever he goes. One last note, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show and stay tuned in for the next episode as we talk to a professor at the School of Computing and Information at the University of Pittsburgh about a fascinating paper he and a colleague have written on quantifying the contribution of every player on the field by assigning positional values to each player. And with that, we'll catch you all next time. Peace!